Hello Rebels, I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed and you're listening to a free audio-only recording of my weekly Wednesday night show, The Gun Show. Tonight my guest is Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. Now if you like listening to this show, um, then you're probably going to really like watching it. I mean, who doesn't want to see the look on my face when I'm talking about how anti-human the environmentalist movement is? And you can't see my face when you're just listening to the podcast. But to watch the show, you need to be a subscriber to what we call Rebel News Plus. That's our long-form TV-style shows here on Rebel News. Subscribers get access to my show as well as other great TV-style shows too, like Ezra's nightly Ezra Levant show and David Menzies' fun Friday night show, Rebel Roundup. It's only 8 bucks a month to subscribe, or you can subscribe annually. And if you do that, you get two months free. And just for my podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new Rebel News Plus membership by using the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe. Just go to rebelnews.com slash subscribe to become a member. And please, do me a favor. Leave a five-star review on this podcast and subscribe in iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use because those reviews are a great way to support us here at Rebel News without ever having to spend a dime. And it does something else too. It helps other people find us. And now please enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. Are anti-oil academics biting the hand that feeds them? Of course they are. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed and you're watching The Gun Show. ago as economies were shutting down and governments were forcing people to stay home and as parts of Europe were being completely devastated by the coronavirus the green movement well they saw their chance to finally stick a stake in the heart of the goose that they refused to acknowledge lays the golden egg on March 25th 2020, a group of 265 academics from across Canada signed a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau expressing their deep concerns that, according to a Globe and Mail report, the federal government was considering a $15 billion bailout package for oil and gas companies. Oh, don't worry, my green friends. That was like three weeks ago and the bailout package, well, it's never come. Probably won't ever come. I'll be shocked if it does come. But our friends at Friends of Science have pointed out just how ridiculous it is for these academics to attack the oil and gas sector. After all, the oil and gas sector supports so much of academia. The makers always support the professional thinkers, even if the professional thinkers don't like to be reminded of that inconvenient truth, if you'll allow me to borrow a phrase from Al Gore. Joining me tonight to discuss the raging ingratitude of these green academics and so much more is my friend Michelle Sterling, from Friends of Science in an interview we recorded yesterday afternoon. So joining me now 
now is Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science from her home in Calgary. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Um, we've heard a lot um, lately about how uh, the federal government is sort of examining the coronavirus shutdown in the economy as a way to now rewrite the economy in a green way. Uh, Justin Trudeau talked about that in an interview with CBC Kids that I sat through. That was horrendous. Um, but you uh, you folks actually wrote a letter, um, an open letter to the prime minister um, about the coronavirus recovery saying, fight this virus, not carbon. Right. Well, there are a group of um, there is a group of uh, 265 academics from across Canada who uh, sort of initiated this because they wrote a letter basically saying, you know, don't bail out the oil and gas industry because they're a bunch of bums and you should be doing wonderful things for the environment and climate change and la di da di da. Now, interestingly enough, I think 38 of them is it um, 38 of these professors are from Alberta universities. And this is um, uh, just, uh, you know, really disgusting to think that people whose salaries come from taxes that come from industry and people who work uh, would be so blind and ignorant. So, you know, in 2018, Abacus Data did a big poll across Canada and they found that actually Canadians first priority was health care, improved health care. The last priority was climate change. So what did the governments of the nation do in that time? They chose climate change. So now we're in this COVID crisis. And just imagine if they had spent the hundreds of millions, billions of dollars that have been wasted on climate change on improving health care and improving the health care system, we would not be in this state today. And these academics who don't want to see the energy industry supported, what are they going to do if they're ever dragged into hospital? Because everything in our hospital relies 100% on fossil fuels, everything. So, so anyway, we wrote this letter outing these academics, calling their bluff and asking the government to save Canada, build pipelines and quit Paris, get out of the Paris Agreement. That's probably the most important thing that we could do. Now, you uh, you guys also, not you, I'm sorry, Robert Lyman also wrote a letter um, that basically saying to these um, academics, and when we say academics, we don't mean uh, like geoscientists or um, climatologists, meteorologists. No. These academics could be like gender studies majors <laughs> um, masquerading well, as academics. Well, most of them are in the social sciences. And, uh, you yeah. know, certainly there's a role for that in society. But these should not be the people... <laughs> These should not be the people who are deciding our energy policies because they have no idea how things work. Like there are no engineers in this list of people. Um, so advocating for, you know, a full renewable, 100% renewable or net zero 2050 policies, you know, these are ludicrous. They're economically suicidal and that they actually will kill a lot of people as Professor Kelly, who is an expert in engineering has said, that such goals would cause mass deaths. So these are social scientists who are actually advocating for the death of human beings with their, their views on 
energy. Um, so yes, Robert Lyman is um, an energy economist. He was a public, federal public servant for 27 years and he was a diplomat for 10 years. So he's worked on the GHG file for a long time and he's been different departments within the, the government, including finance. So he wrote, "Don't um, biting the hand that feeds you, <laughs> which is a fairly short kind of report, but it shows just how far removed these 265 academics are from reality. And don't they know that their incomes rely directly on taxes and the large majority of taxes that come from the oil and gas industry and from people who work in that industry. Um, the tax base is phenomenal. Uh, now, you know, it's, it's important to realize that uh, the median salary, according to a survey of academics done a couple of years ago, median salary of a full professor is $160,161 a year. So, you know, these are pretty good salaries and even entry level, Entry-level academic staff, it's $94,000. So th this is a big chunk of change that these people are getting. And yet, um, you know, if you look at uh, the Alberta oil and gas industry, we uh, contributed $240 billion uh, in, uh, in taxes between 2000 and 2018. So do you think any of that money paid these people? And what are they doing? They're biting the hand that feeds them. So, uh, you know, the other thing that's interesting about their letter, and that Robert also pointed out in his report, don't bite the hand that feeds you, he pointed out that they all signed the letter and also identified the university that they're with, which gives the public the impression that somehow the university might sanction this kind of talk. Um, so, you know, it might be interesting for people in Canada who have a different view than these academics to drop a line to their local university and, um, and, and say what they think to the president. Yeah, we have to remember that the University of Alberta is the same university that gave an honorary degree to David Suzuki <laughs> a couple yeah. of years ago. I mean, so this is this is so embedded in academia, but they like, as you point out, they have that disconnect that um, the money to pay their salaries doesn't come from the money tree. It comes from the money oil, Derek. And um, sometimes I think they need to be reminded of that. I think they need to be reminded of that every single day, you know, Amen. and and also that they couldn't sit in a comfy little office with the lights on and the heat on and they couldn't have all these bursaries and scholarships. Many of the people who are their students or their whole reason for being wouldn't be there if they didn't have access to some of the scholarships and goodies that many of these companies have afforded over the years. So, uh, yeah, I think they need a really big wake up call. Yeah, it's really easy um, to forget that when you flip the switch on in your office, in your comfy taxpayer-funded office, or when you're putting fuel in your car, in your expensive car, um, that there is somebody out there making a living with living with their back and their hands to make sure that that energy is, you know, a, a push of a button away for you. Um, and it it's pretty easy to forget um, when you work a white collar job um it's pretty easy to forget that blue collar jobs are making your life pretty darn easy um but one other thing i want sure. to add too is these academics um <clears throat> excuse me robert noted that uh, many of them have also been signatory 
on uh, petitions related to, say, the Wet'suwet'en blockade, uh, you know, no tech, reject tech. Uh, you know, if you look at Robert Lyman's uh, previous report, Prosperity Foregone, $100 billion in projects have been blocked or rejected by the Canadian government in the past two years alone. If you go through that prosperity foregone, you'll find that there are more hundreds of billions of dollars that have just uh, vanished into the mist because of people like this, because of these activists who just don't have their head in reality. And actually, Robert wrote another very good report called Transition to Reality. Um, it's on the Global Warming Policy Foundation site. It's a very good, very readable report that assesses some of the challenges of this, um, you know, very ideological dream of moving tomorrow to uh, all renewables. And you'll see how, how complex it is and how impossible it is at this time, like renewable supply maybe somewhere between 2 and 6% of the energy in the world. Everything else is fossil fuels or, um, you know, bi uh, biomass or um, nuclear. The, the majority is fossil fuels, I think about 84%. You know, what a different, different situation Canada would be in right now, and Alberta for that matter, if that $100 billion worth of projects had gone forward. Um, you know, when we see a near complete economic shutdown across the country, yet in Alberta, we've deemed our oil sands and fossil fuel workers essential workers, which they are. They work to keep people alive every day and ventilators running. Um, what a different scenario we would see unfolding across the economy of Canada had that $100 billion worth of projects go forward. Shame on those people who blocked them and shame on the government for not allowing them to go forward. Um, yeah, I, I, can I say one more thing? Sure. I, I just recently watched um, the um, CBC co-production, uh, The Tipping Point, Age of the Oil Sands. And in it, there's a comment by uh, Don Thompson, who was then the um, CEO of the Oil Sands Developers Group. And he noted that even with the 2008 recession, the oil sands created 450,000 jobs in Canada. And uh, there's always, of course, a trickle-down effect from those jobs, because if you have money because you're working in the oil sands and you also have money to buy a truck and your partner has money to get their hair done and you know somebody else can get their nails done and your kid can go to a certain kind of school or whatever uh you can take a certain vacation so all of that money recycles through society anyway the other thing that don said and he's only in there for maybe five minutes but he said that if we remained on track at the investment of that that time that we would have $1.7 trillion in investment in Canada just because of the oil sands. And that's all gone, or pretty much all gone. So, and it began with the blockading of Keystone XL by those guys, and they're actually in that same video. You see National Resources Defense Council flying up to Fort Mac, and they're actually planning the tar sands campaign in Canada, in a CBC documentary that was funded by you, the taxpayer, in every single way. It's it's astounding to see it now and know what we know. It's outrageous. And the worst part is that that, you know, trillion plus dollars in investment or economic 
growth. It didn't disappear into thin air. It just left Canada. It's somewhere in the world. It's, you know, it's right. in the Middle East. It's in Russia. It's in the United States. Yeah, it's and it was driven out. It was yeah, driven out. It was yes. driven out by Greenpeace. It was driven out by West Coast Environmental Law. It was driven out by Eco Justice. All these groups, and and incidentally, of course, all now have their hand out for a bailout. It's hilarious to see these um, charities, these EN charities, that are now begging for money from the government when they already get millions of dollars every year from the government. Like environmental defense, I think, is funded 30% by government grants. And it's already a tax-subsidized charity. Like, what? Anyhow, let's go on with the show. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great, because it actually takes me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I wanted to ask you about um, this uh, article from Parker Gallant. And he... Uh, says that we are in the midst of an eco charities panic because the funding is drying up for them because yeah. um, all of a sudden an actual real disaster is unfolding as opposed to the one they kept telling us was unfolding and that's the one related to climate change and um, you know the there's um, a, a wage subsidy that's been announced by the federal government for charities to keep charitable organizations going during the economic shutdown. However, um, they're giving that money also to environmental charities. So environmental charities who have already gotten their way, as it would seem, with a complete uh, decarbonization of the economy as we speak, um, they're getting more money to continue to do the terrible things they're doing to the Canadian economy. It's outrageous. Yeah, it's truly outrageous. And uh, another thing that your viewers should know, there's this thing called uh, Social Sciences uh, and Human Research Council in Canada, SASHRC. And uh, the, they're funding a lot of these guys. Like they're, they're funding movements at universities where, where um, people are being taught how to do blockades. And they're funding things like the upcoming, if it goes, um, Abby Lewis, Nomi Klein event at uh, UVic, a regime of obstruction. That's a nice thing, hey? To yeah. Host at the university. So they're teaching people how to obstruct and delay and stop our economy. And they don't know really what the end game is. I mean, where do they think that people will work? Because um, we see now, you know. We have no teachers really working right now. There's a few doing some online stuff, but we don't, we don't need classrooms anymore, I guess. We just need a camera. And so you can just have one teacher and not 50. And yeah, so, you know, what, what kind of work will be green in the future when there's no jobs at all? Like these people are destroying society and we're paying them to do it. Why? Yeah. I, I mean, the... Green movement and the environmental left, they're all being very upfront about what they want the coronavirus to do to the yeah. economy. They really do see it. And I'm not being, um, I, I, I don't mean to exaggerate. They really do see what's happening with the coronavirus as an opportunity to rewrite the economy so that it is decarbonized and we can see that already like I'm uh, I constantly preface the fact that I'm not a conspiracy theorist um by then s 
offering my conspiracy theory. But when, when we see the fact that the federal government is basically bailing out everybody, even those people who don't need it, because you automatically qualify for this CERB payment if you apply for it. They'll claw it back come tax time, but you're getting it if you apply for it. But Bill Morneau promised some sort of relief for the oil and gas sector. We're coming up on three weeks now, and he said within hours or days when he said that. And it's three weeks now and nothing's happening, although they're proposing bailouts for the media, for the eco-charities. Um, SNC-Lavalin's probably in the mix. Bombardier's probably in the mix. Like, It's very telling who's been left out of the help here. And it has been the oil and gas sector. They're completely being left out. Now, if Alberta gets any help in the oil and gas sector, it looks like it's going to come from Donald Trump by sort of uh, what he's been doing and what Jason Kenney has been doing to um, get the OPEC plus nations to cut production. But that negotiation that we saw unfolding there with OPEC plus, that should have come from the federal government. And it didn't. Um, our, Our help is going to come from ourselves and from the Americans. It's never going to come from this federal government as long as Justin Trudeau is in power. Well, I would say again that the big problem, in my view, is the um, climate deal that Canada made with France that, again, nobody talks about. But it's all based on carbon markets and the promotion of carbon markets. And we've seen some items in the press uh, that suggest that the bailout for the oil and gas industry would be reliant on climate uh, gestures and and related things. And what I've seen in the past is basically... You know, these institutional investors will say to an oil company, hey, we want you to be more green. So buy a wind farm, buy a solar farm. Well, you know, the company knows it's a waste of money and time, but what the heck, make the investors happy. So the carbon markets have collapsed in Europe, of course, because there's nothing happening. Nobody (laughs) needs to buy emissions credits anymore. Yeah. So they're probably back down at the level that they were in the 2008 recession where they went from about, I think they were 30 euros or so a ton and they're down to about seven now. They I think they dropped to three back then. So a similar thing has happened now. Um, but, you know, those uh, people holding those credits are quite anxious to cash them in somehow. And so I assume that because the renewables industry is dying in Europe, they'll try and pump it up over here because we are the next suckers in line in this Ponzi scheme. And we can't seem to get it through anybody's head that wind and solar are not the kind of energy production that can support even basic society. You would not want to be on a ventilator on solar power because when the sun goes down, you would die. You wouldn't want to be having surgery on wind power because in the middle of surgery you might go kaput because uh, all of your equipment would stop. Um, people don't understand that these advanced medical procedures need high quality. That means no dips and no surges, high quality, reliable, affordable power, or you don't have modern medicine. So we should not fall for this climate fiasco that they're trying to tie together with the oil and gas industry because you don't need wind and solar You just need gas and oil and coal, actually. You need coal, too, because you can't make any of the equipment like a CT scanner. You can't make that unless you have coal because you can't 
make metal. <laughs> so, you know, we've got to re-educate the entire society because they're just so energy illiterate, especially these 265 academics. Yeah, it's strange. You know, in the midst of all of this, where we see that single-use plastics, one of my favorite things to talk about, are <laughs> saving, like it is. I don't know why. I don't know why, but I could do a thousand stories on single-use plastics. I have a Google alert set for it. Um, in the midst of all of this, single-use plastic, the war on single-use plastics, for all intents and purposes, in practical ways, is over. Um, we, we've seen these virtue signaling municipalities saying, oh, no, 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 no. Do not bring your E. coli infested reusable <laughs> bag into our store anymore because not only will it give us E. coli and diarrhea, but probably the coronavirus. So please accept this beautiful, clean, hygienic single right. plastic bag. Um, and then when you go to the hospitals and you see every, literally everything in medicine is single use plastic um, from, um, you know, the, the tubing, the bags, the syringes, everything is single use plastic. And, and then it's wrapped yeah. in single use plastic because that's yes. how you keep things sterile. Exactly. Um, inst but instead of Justin Trudeau waking up to the idea like, hey, no, 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 because single use plastics are saving lives, maybe we shouldn't be listing them as a schedule one toxin along with lead, mercury, and um, benzene, that they're promising to continue to do that. I just saw um, an article in Blacklocks today that it's going to cost the taxpayer $8 billion to keep plastics out of landfills so that the liberals can meet this arbitrary um, goal of getting 90% of single-use plastics out of the landfills. I think we should be burning them and it'd be a lot cheaper. Um, however, I mean, it's just like when you see all the evidence of one thing manifesting to prove you wrong, it seems as though the federal government just is ignoring it and still pursuing whatever thing they promised to do six months ago. Facts be damned. Right. Well, one thing that people should be aware of is that there's a great report on the Heartland Institute. It's written by Dr. Patrick Moore and Dr. Willie Soon, and it explores how Greenpeace uses these kinds of, um, of things as a campaign, as a fundraiser, basically. So they have such a massive organization now, and they're pretty cash rich, uh, apparently. But to keep those donations going, they have to plan these campaigns. So there's always a fear campaign, you know, oh, we're all going to die of climate change. And then after that starts to peter out, okay, now we're all going to die of plastic use. Um, you know, we've got quite a few um, items on our YouTube channel with Dr. Patrick Moore and Dr. Soon, and they both talk about these issues in, in a couple of those um, presentations. So have a look at that and, and see how you're being misled, really being misled. And of course, the media, you know, they love a good headline too. So they catch on to this thing and go, oh, everybody's got plastic in their body. <laughs> now we're all going to die. So, you know, of course, uh, there are places in the world that are horribly polluted with plastic. And these are usually developing countries where they have no environmental regulations, no recycling, nothing. And there's also places like Calgary where we apparently have uh, semi-trailers full of uh, clamshell plastics that we're saving for the small price of $300,000 a year. 
And like you, I agree, we could probably just burn them um, and generate electricity. That I think there's a plant either, isn't there a plant in Swan Hills? That's a toxic plant. Yep. And I think there's one in Edmonton too, actually, in the north side of Edmonton, where you could just toast them up, have some power. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know where else there's one? Mm -hmm. um, and I only know this because that's where we sent the beautiful ship of Filipino garbage, which was actually Canadian garbage that we sent to the Philippines. Oh, right. <laughs> and then we had to ship it back, um, which is a very long journey for um, an environmentalist government to allow a bunch of garbage <laughs> to do. I'm sure somewhere in between they could have incinerated it, but whatever. They brought it back. I think it's in Burnaby, of oh. all places. Green <laughs> Burnaby, the place where they don't want the Trans Mountain Pipeline. No. They have a plant that incinerates garbage wow. and burns it for energy. And that's where the garbage went. Um, it got brought all the way back to Canada to be incinerated for energy. When if we had done that in the first place, we yeah. probably sh could have saved some carbon emissions if you care about those sorts of things. I care about just offending the Filipino people by shipping yeah, up yeah, them our garbage. I don't care about the CO2 emissions, but if you do, maybe that wasn't the best choice. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we are in like the second biggest country in the world. Why are we sending containers full of garbage to tiny islands for them to take care of? Like, that's crazy, but there's lots of crazy things going on. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah and I, I, I do like your point of, you know, if, more money, if you care about the cleanliness of the environment, why, and and your plan is to just throw money at third world countries, then why aren't you throwing money at third world countries to create these incinerators, these high efficiency of incinerators to create energy because they need energy. Most of the third world is experiencing energy poverty and they have energy sitting there stored as trash. Why aren't we helping them deal with the trash problem and the energy problem and then thus making the environment around them um, a little bit less plastic infested? Um, but we're not doing that. We're just, you know, giving the money to the United Nations and cycling it through the hands of a thousand bureaucrats before they do some sort of climate change pet project um, and, in, in and, the third world. And speaking of climate change pet projects, Robert Lyman just wrote another blog i just posted it this morning and um it's about aviation so you know what industry in the world has really been kicked in the guts by covid 19 it's aviation right they're going to need a lot of help to recover but what's coming climate change regulations <laughs> you know and a carbon so tax uh, well this is this huge bundle of different kinds of of uh taxes regulations they're supposed to use more biofuel there's going to be a passenger duty tax depending on what distance you fly um the corsia uh, legislation I, it's it's just ludicrous to think that people would even consider to go ahead with this at this time so read his blog and it's called mayday that's the <laughs> opening title anyway um read that blog post and see because i'm sure you know there's the whole vacation industry, tourism, um, aviation, they're all interconnected and they, they are actually the lifeblood of many of the countries, these smaller countries. Um, without that, those countries won't have a hope in heck of getting back on their feet. And without restarting this industry and giving them a fair chance to get going, um, they won't be able to survive, especially if we're piling all, all these 
stupid regulations. Yeah, and stupid. we see what do we see now uh, at Mauna Loa, where where they measure the CO two, it continues to rise there, even though all the industry is shut down. So obviously, there's a really big disconnect between the CO two generating sources and uh, what's uh, what's at risk in terms of human use of fossil fuels. It's it's not the existential threat, certainly not at this point, that people say it is. Yeah, I hope maybe the coronavirus, the, the one silver lining in all of this economic shutdown and death and illness is that people will have an actual concept of what a real emergency can do to your country, to your economy, to your family, to your freedom, um, and put into context all the climate change fear mongering that has happened. Um, maybe, maybe that's the one good thing that might come of this. I'm not confident, though, just based on how governments are continuing to react and still, after all of this, treat climate change as though it's the real killer out there. Right. Well, you know, we saw Elizabeth May the other day going on about it to to that effect. And um, and honestly, I mean, these are people who've been flying all over the world to these climate conferences and now they're upset because boohoo, you know, COP26 has been canceled. <laughs> well, couldn't they do it like we're doing it right now? You know, there is Zoom. I mean, this yep. is something actually that the Dutch government recommended back in 2013, that instead of having all these big festivals where people fly all over the world to meet uh, and are huge hypocrites for doing so, why not have regional groups that work on climate and weather issues post it on an online website where people can then cross-pollinate their information and uh, not have these big wasteful events. Well, that obviously went over like a lead balloon because these people love flying around the world and telling everyone we're going to die from climate change. Look at me, I'm getting on a jet so I can tell you that you're going to die from climate change. Isn't it funny, though, how an actual emergency caused them to not get on their private jets and go to Glasgow? for the UN climate change conference that's coming up. Like it was never the threat of climate change that prompted them to give up their private flights and their fancy elitist party. It was the coronavirus. Um, so I, you know, to some extent, at least they're getting mugged by reality. True, so. that's true, yeah. <laughs> now, Michelle, last time I talked to you, I think you were, you folks were still planning, but not quite sure about whether or not your event was going to go forward. Well, we hope to be able to reschedule it, but of course we're, you know, complying with the uh, requirements of Alberta Health Services, and we're just following along and seeing what's, you know, what's going to be on the agenda, whether society will reopen and whether we'll be able to have large gatherings, or maybe it'll have to be put off for a year. We hope not, but uh, we'll just have to see how things turn out. Um, we we were all we were pretty much sold out too, so yeah. <laughs> kind of. Uh, I know oh, well. <laughs> it, it, it's terribly disappointing because I, I cannot say enough good things about um, the annual um, Friends of Science dinner buffet, plus the speakers, but also the dinner buffet. Um. <laughs> and, and interestingly, you know, it was going to be with Donna Laframboise, who was yeah. going to talk about freedoms and how climate activists want your freedoms. And now we see with the COVID-19 chaos uh, all of our freedoms are being taken away ostensibly for our health and for the good of society we don't want the health system to collapse we don't want more people to get sick or god forbid more people to die um, 
so these measures do seem to be having some constructive effects but but you see how easily people are then going one step further and saying well now we'll put the police on the street now we'll arrest you and now um you know you can't play ball with your kid anymore because that was too close so you know there's uh it's very odd that we couldn't get the blockadia off the railway tracks so that killed our economy for a couple of months but we can arrest people in the street because they left their house. So, you know, we got to be very careful of these freedoms. And that's what Donna was going to talk about. And she also has a great blog, uh, which is Big Pick, uh, the big picture. So uh, Donna Laframboise is somebody to follow and note on these issues. Yeah, it's, uh, it's I, I pointed that out um with my friend David Menzies earlier today, um, we were talking about a man who was um, ticketed in Toronto for rollerblading with his kids, the kids he lives with in his home, in a completely empty parking lot and the police came, I assume because some busybody bothered to call the police and turn him in and ticketed him some $800 for rollerblading with his kids. And these are the same, this is the same law enforcement that couldn't... Um, break up a blockade the way you just mentioned. I mean, it's we're seeing the priorities of this government unfold right before our very eyes. And it's very worrying. Um, Michelle, we're coming up on 34 minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how can people find out more about um, the work that you do at Friends of Science and more importantly, support the work that you do at Friends of Science? Um, because I think right now this country needs a watchdog more than ever because as I pointed out earlier, I think the environmental movement sees the coronavirus as an opportunity and a blueprint for what they want to do to the economy. And I think you guys are that watchdog. Thank you. Well, I, I think that that's true. I mean, this is what we're seeing in terms of the societal collapse is what the Green New Deal would be about. And this is where they're saying, wow, see, it is doable. We can shut down the economy. Yeah. Um, so, so far things have not collapsed and we don't have rides in the street, but, uh, boy, you know, you don't, you don't have to read much history to see what happens when people get too angry or hungry. Um, yeah. and the phrase liberté, fraternité, égalité did not come from people sitting around a round table and having a chat, it came out of the French revolution, which was pretty darn bloody. So let's hope that we don't get to that state, but, um, the, the place where people can support us or see our work, we're on friendsofscience.org and we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, uh, friends o science on Twitter. Uh, we're on, um, I'm on LinkedIn, we, we have a LinkedIn page as well and um, we have an Instagram page. We have a blog, the blog is- YouTube, your YouTube, oh, don't YouTube. forget your YouTube. <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> yeah. yeah, very active YouTube page, lots of different people there. So. Um, come on over, come on down. We've got a, <laughs> a donate button on our main website. So you can click and donate or become a member. If you become a member, then you get our newsletter mail outs and our CLISI, um, which is a roundup of recent climate papers, uh, scientific papers, and also extracts, which is a roundup of sort of climate political and IPCC going goings on from around the world. So um, join us. Well, I hope people do because um, you really do help break down these very complicated, complex 
issues in a way that arms the ordinary citizen with arguments that they can take out into the world. Uh, Michelle, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, We'll try to get you back on real soon. Stay safe, stay healthy, and try not to get too bored (laughs) as we uh, do our civic duty these days. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sheila. And thanks to the Rebel. You guys are also out there exposing all these faux pas and calling the bluff of everybody who's, uh, let's say, the the grand pretenders. And uh, I appreciate everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Have a great day. I guess decades now, the environmentalist movement has said that we should decarbonize the economy. People should telecommute and travel less and stay at home, all to save the planet. Well, here we are. We're not doing it to save the planet, though. Apparently, we're doing it to save lives from the coronavirus. It's terrible. People are going broke. And unfortunately, the government is being forced to subsidize every aspect of our lives. But at some point, that bill is going to come due and someone's going to have to pay for it. This is what a green economy looks like. And it's pretty grim, isn't it? Um, Environmentalists, really, they should be careful what they wish for because we all just might get it. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here in the same time, in the same place next week. Please stay safe, stay healthy. Take care of yourselves, and remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.